reading will come from Romans 15, verses 14 through 22. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yet, I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sister Shania. Let's bow our heads together and let's pray. It's a blessing, Lord, to even hear that, that chatter that was hard to stop, that chatter. It's a joy. That's a gift. The fellowship of the saints, your people in communion with one another as we commune with you, God. And so now we pray that you would send your spirit and that you would enable us to commune with you, our maker, our redeemer, through your living word. So come, make this time profitable. Uh, pierce our hearts, our souls, energize our, our bodies, our, our lives towards you, Jesus, towards neighbor. Uh, Jesus, we pray for your blessing. And receive even our listening to your word let alone the preaching of it, as an act of worship to you that's pleasing in your sight. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, receive this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Twenty years ago this summer, twenty years ago this summer, Glenn and Meg Hoberg, together with their two young daughters, climbed into their station wagon, moved to the District of Columbia, and helped to start a new church that would soon be named Grace DC. Now, I know worded that way, I know it almost makes the Hoburgs sound like they were like pilgrims landing on Plymouth Rock, Ancient history, Glenn's not that old, but it is true, however, that 20 years is a long time, a long time for God to show up to show his glory, a long time for God to gather in his saints, a long time for Jesus to do his invisible kingdom ministry. The truth is, of course, we don't know all the fruit that God has been bearing in 20 years. 
but 20 years is a long time. 1,040 Sundays have passed, I counted, in that time. And now across three congregations, as that one church has multiplied, and as different people have gathered, and even here in this room, some of you are older veteran members, originally here, yes, on that date 20 years ago, and some of you brand new to the church, maybe even just 20 minutes old, a part of this community. But it invites us to reflect and to consider how much God perhaps has done, how much God has surely done in our midst, seen and unseen. The big things and the little things. How many, how many thousands of communion cups have been filled so that hearts could be filled with the grace of God? How many people have had their eyes opened to the beauty and the wonder and the love and the truth of Jesus, putting their faith in him for the first time, including some of you in this room here today? How many prayers have been prayed and prayers that have been answered? How many mistakes have been made? And yet Jesus' grace is greater to cover over them and to redirect them and to rule sovereignly over them, directing all things for our good and his glory. How many immeasurable, unseen acts of care and love and conversation and neighborliness and exhortation, rebuke and confession and repentance and forgiveness and love have been exchanged in these 20 years. Friends, as we recall these things, I want to start our time in God's word by drawing attention to verse 17 of this morning's reading from Romans, where the Apostle Paul begins by affirming the Roman Christians' understanding of the gospel, where he commends their character, their goodness, and he also commends their competence in instructing, teaching one another the truths of the gospel. And as Paul himself reflects on his years of ministry, he says these remarkable words, again in verse 17, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. And that phrase, glory in, you may know, can also be worded rejoice in or boast in. Here's how a few translations render that sentence. I have reason to be proud of my work for God. It's not normal language, I think, that we're accustomed to using or hearing when speaking about the faithful work ongoing in the life of a church across many years. And yet we have apostolic permission, even mandate to speak this way. Brothers and sisters, members of the Grace DC community at large, brothers and sisters, you have reason to be proud of your work for God. And I'm not talking about a kind of arrogance 
that takes undue human credit for the work of Christ, not talking either about false humility that's unable to receive a compliment, but rather I'm talking about a kind of Godward rejoicing, even boasting in your collective service to God. I think I can say on using the the words of the apostle himself at the outset of this passage, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness. You yourselves are filled with knowledge of Christ. You yourself are competent to instruct one another. This is worth celebrating. This is worth boasting in the faithfulness of Christ, what Paul later says in verse 18, what Christ has accomplished through me. Dear friends, are you learning to find reason to be proud in your work for God? It's why we gather together each year like this, uh, to take account of what God has done, uh, to give each other a holy fist bump, to rejoice and to give praise to God. But there's more that Paul says. He offers in this brief passage, we'll look at it briefly, a unique vision of what the church is and what the church is supposed to do. And I'd like to present it to you simply in this way, a sentence that I'd like you to remember. And it's this, that we are called as a church to be a missionary community of suffering love in the city. We're called to be a missionary community of suffering love in the city. And this is precisely what I believe Paul, at the end of this magisterial treatise, this book of Romans, As he finishes up his final words to the Roman Christians, this is what I believe Paul commends to them, a vision that he casts for them and for us. A missionary community of suffering love for the city in the city. What does that exactly mean, though? Let's break it apart and look at it one phrase at a time. First, we're called to be a missionary community. Notice how the Apostle Paul is writing himself as a missionary. He calls himself, in verse 16, a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, using that Bible word referring to non-Jewish Christians of every culture. He describes his work as that of leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said and done, in verse 18. And he speaks, in verse 20, of his ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known wanting to push the boundaries and extend the borders of places and people that know Christ as Savior, as Redeemer. But notice also that the whole reason why he's writing this is to invite the Roman Christians to support his work as a missionary to Spain. Paul discussed this plan in the following verses in verse 24. In other words, he's not just talking about what he personally endeavors to do as a missionary. He believes 
that the whole church ought to actively participate in this mission. Who's the missionary? Paul. Not just him, but the church. Missionary, though not used explicitly in this passage, captures the theme of this passage and describes not the passion of one apostle, but the passion of Christ himself, the passion of the triune God, captures not just the passion of Paul, but the essential character of Christ's church. We are called to be a missionary community. Now I know that for some of you, that language of missionary may immediately make you nervous. Now, it certainly did for my mom. This is years ago during a time in high school when my sister and I were going through this period of spiritual renewal. And we recognized that our mom started getting worried that perhaps we were becoming too fanatical in our newfound faith. And so sort of to poke at her, half serious, half joking, I would proceed to threaten her that I was going to become a pastor. (laughs) And my sister would proceed to threaten my mom that she was to become a missionary. Look at what happened to me. All right. Maybe this is a word of, of joyful caution, teens. Be careful. Be careful how you mock your parents. You never know what God might do. My sister did not become a vocational ministry, but my mom did become nervous. (laughs) That word does connote a lot of things. It carries a lot of baggage, doesn't it? Even as I choose to use it this morning. For others of you, it may not be what my mom felt. It might feel to you like that word has just uh, too much of this vibe of, of colonialism or coercion. But I want to assure you That by using it, and as scripture gives us the vibe of it, all I mean by missionary is someone who doesn't live for themselves but for others. When I say that we're called to be a missionary church, I mean that we're called to be like someone who directs their gaze toward their neighbor, peeling off their eyes and the attention of their hearts away from inward focus and inward concern to embodying the gospel with their words and actions for the good and even for the life of those around them. I'm talking about a missionary, someone for whom cross-cultural encounters are expected rather than avoided, and for whom it is normal rather than exceptional. I'm talking about someone whose life and vocation is defined by outward-facing and other-centered love. Friends, the church is not a fortress or a hiding place from the corrupting influences of the world. The church is a missionary community. Leslie Newbegin was a 
a British missionary to India and afterwards a theologian from the last century, and he was one who would often describe the church as a missionary community. That's where this language comes from. He actually once wrote this, the church is not meant to call men and women out of the world into a safe religious enclave, but to call them out in order to send them back as agents of God's kingship. And if you're wondering what does it mean to be a missionary community, Newbegin believed that Christians were called to be salt and light in the world and primarily in five ways. The first couple are familiar to us. He talked, yes, about the importance of Christians bearing words of gospel communication, evangelism. He also spoke, secondly, of the importance of deeds of mercy and justice, caring for the vulnerable and the marginalized. He also talked very openly about the importance of missions to frontier places where the gospel is not yet known, whether way out there or even nearby here. But Newbegin also talked about the importance of the distinctive life of the community as a missionary community. That is to say that the church, we are called to be different from the world for the good of the world. That people are supposed to sense light and hope and truth upon seeing the ways in which we relate to one another, salt and light in this world. And lastly, and maybe most unexpectedly, Newbegin pointed to the importance of the faithfulness of ordinary Christians in their daily work as a key way in which God intends to push out his missionary community and bring forward the kingdom of God here on earth. What a missionary community does not mean. Someone says, wait, hold on a second. What are we talking about here? Are we only concerned about things out there? Does missionary community mean that teaching theology and the Bible and doctrine, does it mean that that doesn't matter? No. It does matter. We must teach and instruct as Paul himself even has done and models here. But what it does mean is that even the greatest theological treatise ever written in the book of Romans was written for the purpose of equipping people for mission. And it should be so for us as well. Teaching, yes, but for the purpose of equipping our members and our neighbors for life and ministry in a rapidly changing culture? Does missionary community mean that that care and counseling people that are hurting, that that suddenly doesn't matter, that it evaporates? And of course not. But it does mean that we start to understand that the church as an army field hospital, bringing people that are wounded and bruised and maybe barely limping along, maybe like some of you feel today, calling them into a place of healing and and solace and community, but then also sending them out onto the mission field. Because mission itself defines even our counseling and care ministries. 
Another person says, does missionary community mean that then children's and youth ministry doesn't matter at all, that it's unimportant? And of course, not at all. It means rather that the goal of even our children's and youth ministries is not to keep our kids safe from the world, but rather to equip our kids for the actual world that they are inheriting and the world that they're called to serve on mission. We're training them for life and faithfulness and service to God and to neighbor. Friends, where are the energies of our churches, our relationships, our programs, our events, the organic parts of community life? Where are the energies flowing towards? Is it just towards ourselves with an inward focus, with a vortex of concern and conversation and energy towards me and me and even us, quote unquote, or... Can we, by God's grace, redirect that outwardly with attention and focus and energy and concern and tears and prayers devoted outwardly as Christ devoted himself outwardly towards us that we do likewise towards our neighbors. We're called to be a missionary community. Secondly, we're called to be a missionary community of suffering love in the city. In the city. Listen to what the apostle says in the second half of verse 19. He says, so from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Now you may or may not know, probably not know, it's not a well-known word, but Illyricum was actually a province of the Roman Empire in Paul's day in the first century included modern-day regions like Albania and Serbia and Croatia, stretching up from Macedonia, Greece, onward up towards what is now today Italy. And this was sort of Paul's shorthand way of saying, yeah, everywhere from Jerusalem to Rome, we have proclaimed the gospel. But what's really fascinating, I think, about the way that Paul words this is that he declares, I have fully proclaimed, fully proclaimed the gospel in that whole region, fully proclaimed. How can he claim that? Did he visit every last village there? Did he knock on every last door? The answer, of course, is no. What he did do was start little churches in cities all across that region. Cities like Antioch, Ephesus, Corinth, Athens, Philippi, Thessalonica. You can read all about it in the book of Acts. And listen, as he looked upon these different, again, modest, small churches that were started up in these cities around the region, apparently Paul was so convinced, so confident in the cultural influence that cities had on their surrounding regions that after planting these churches, he could say, I'm done. The gospel is fully proclaimed there. In other words, it's going to happen such as the way that God has designed the influence of cities upon the wider culture. 
And this is precisely why the early Christian movement was a city movement. And the very first Christians were urban Christians. In other words, when we describe the Grace DC Network as a church in and for the city, we stand in the tradition of Christ's apostles. And this is not just owing to the strategic and missional importance of cities themselves, the impact that it has, that cities have on the wider culture. But this is also owing, the city-centric priority is also owing to the Bible's way of describing cities as a little preview and picture of eternal life in heaven. What a bold claim. You know what is awaiting followers of Christ in the future, the new heavens and the new earth? It's something like city life. Which invites us to ask the question, well, how? Uh, What exactly makes a city a city? What is a city? Listen, cities at its core are marked by this, density and proximity. We're all squished in together. On a day like this, we're squished in and waving our programs like fans. (laughs) Squished in together. But it's that proximity together in cities that offer up unique blessings. Number one, because you're squished in, you're bumping into each other. Blessing number one, community. The possibility of community. Actual relationships with neighbors. Where strangers become neighbors and neighbors can become friends. And friends can become sisters and brothers. Another gift, that proximity, that togetherness offers up what you might describe as security. And what I mean by that is that peoples that have been vulnerable in other places have always found refuge in cities where they can find other people like themselves. So especially for minority groups, ethnic minorities, sexual minorities, Different people that on their own have been more vulnerable, again, including single people, including people that are economically deprived or victims of injustice. Cities allow people to find more support because there are more people, more programs, structures, and ways of finding a critical mass of people like themselves. And that's why that security often means cities are marked by diversity as well. A mix of people and not just one. Community, security, industry. Again, rubbing shoulders and being in tight spaces together opens up the possibility of people pulling together their gifts, their talents, their collaborative energy, their creativity, and producing amazing things. It's why so much is generated in cities. These are blessings that we find in cities. Do we find these as opportunities for us as churches to really harness, to dig into, to lift up, to enjoy, and to see what might God do with these things as a church in and for the city? Now, of course, I don't mean to romanticize cities or city life. It absolutely can be tough. A couple years ago, Paula and I were sort of browsing and looking for a place to take some vacation time, and we 
were clicking through Airbnb, as people tend to do, and we were looking in this one particular city and found a place in a neighborhood that looked really interesting. The pictures were so oddly appealing to us. Uh, it, they, they looked like the very kinds of things we love. And, and we noticed murals, and we noticed the cultural diversity of the area, and we noticed the homes and the historic parts of that town, and we found ourselves so drawn until suddenly we shook our heads and realized that we were basically almost about to go to a place just like Columbia Heights where we already live. <laughs> and that's when we said, no, 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 we need to back out here because we had grown in wisdom, you see, as you have too, that sometimes when you live in a city, you need to step out of the city in order to stay in the city. Sometimes you need to get out to other things that you love in order to stay to the thing that you most want to love. Because cities can be hard, and they can be exhausting, and they can come with a cost. Like all places in the world, cities are broken places. Instead of community, cities are often the loneliest places in the world. In the midst of its diversity, you often find segregated neighborhoods and lots of friction. In the midst of its industry, cities are often beset by the idolatry of work and achievement, which circles back to the first point, that's possibly partly why so, so many people are lonely in cities. Cities at their best are gifts to be harnessed, to be leaned into. Uh, the possibilities of ministry are endless, and the brokenness of cities are opportunities and challenges that we're called to lean into. But this is what we need to grapple with again in this 20th year, calling ourselves back into the city. And I don't just mean geographically, I'm talking about our hearts. We are not a traditional country church that's accidentally located in the city. And that's not to say that there's anything wrong with a traditional country church. It's just not what we are called to be. We are called to be in this wild place, this culturally and politically progressive city, where we're called to celebrate its blessings, unmask its idols, and to lean into its culture and tell a true and better story about Jesus and his gospel. We're called to be here among professionals in the city and non-professionals in the city, both sides, as they say, Washington and D.C., but a place where there is, we must understand, this is part of being a church in the city and embracing that, to know that there is a high degree of turnover in the professional segment of the community, which means that there's a lot of heartache and goodbyes, where we recognize that People are often typically away from their nuclear families, and that's why the church must more than ever be a spiritual family. In times of child-rearing, in times of tragedy and loss, in times of joy and celebration, to be a city church means to know that people are often and typically busy and exhausted, which is precisely why in a city like this, the practice of Sabbath is one of the most radical things we can do as a witness to Christ. What does it look like for us to be a deliberately, consciously, and sacrificially city church? Because this is what God has called us to do and to be. Not just to approach the city as a playground, 
but to be a place of priestly ministry, a place to love and to sacrifice and to give, which brings me to the third point. We're called to be first a missionary community, second in the city, and third and last. How are we to carry and conduct ourselves? We're called to serve the city with suffering love. And this will be brief. In verse 16, Paul calls himself a minister of Christ Jesus, a minister. And this is such a common word to Christians that we often forget that that word means servant. And do you know that when Paul quotes scripture in verse 21, where he says, as a result, as a fruit of his ministry, those who were not told about him will see about Christ, and those who have not heard will understand. He's actually drawing from Isaiah chapter 52, which talks about the servant of the Lord who will suffer rejection and pain. You see, Paul is identifying his ministry as following the pattern, the heartbeat of a servant. We're called to be a missionary community. We're called to be in the city. And we're called to do this on our knees. You say, what is a servant? What did Paul have in mind? In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, this is what he says about his identity as an apostle, a servant of God. This is what it was for him. He says, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, in riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. He ain't plain. Do you hear the costliness of cruciform cross love, the love of Jesus in our character? In other words, this is a call to humility. Whereas we approach our neighbors and our friends, we're coming with a posture of listening and of learning and not just telling off or talking down. Where we're coming in with a a habit of repentance, quick to admit where we're wrong, both individually and corporately, quick to confess the corporate and historical sins of the church. Where the question is posed, who's the chief of sinners around here? The answer isn't the world out there in the city and that place. The answer is right here, right here. The chief of sinners and the chief dancer in front of the grace of God. He's talking about the priority of putting other people first. That's what servants do. He's talking about laying his life down and joyfully absorbing the cost of being a missionary in the city. A cost that almost entailed his very own life several times. And a cost that can be very real and tangible even for you and me. Even down to a literal financial cost 
the high cost of living? Will we see even that as an aspect of our calling to be a missionary community? To say it, it's, it's going to require giving things up to be here, to love this city, to love these people, to see God's kingdom arise up and emerge in the cracks and the crevices of broken life here. This is what it's going to take, laying down our lives, dying that others might live. Paul invites us to consider that missionary work in the gospel is often hard. It is glorious. It is eternal. It's often satisfying, but it is always suffering love. And dear friends, as we close, you know we love like that because we've been loved like that. What's the secret to serving in this sort of way, to being this kind of servant, to being this kind of missionary in a place like this, we love because we've been loved by the suffering servant. You know. Paul, when he quotes a passage of Scripture, almost always he has the wider context of that original passage in his mind. What was it that he was quoting here in verse 21? Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. The songs of the, what? Suffering servant. The one who was the ultimate emissary of the original missionary community, Jesus himself, as Jesus said to his disciples of John 20, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus was a missionary, and that's why you know him. Jesus was a missionary of love, and that's why you've been drawn into his family. Paul is speaking about the suffering servant who had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, who was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. The servant who laid down his life, who bore the punishment that we deserved, who loved us to the very end, that we might have life that we might know God, that we might be fully and truly human as we've been created and redeemed to be, that we might be brought into community, into family, and then in that calling, sent back out to be emissaries of this servant-like suffering love. We are called, friends, as a church to be a missionary community of suffering love in the city. 20 years God has given us incredible fruit. I don't mean this in a triumphalistic way. We see our flaws. We see our wrong turns. We see this on our knees. But we do see by faith that God has given us grace. He's given us fruit. And we rejoice. We're grateful. But do you hear the call? Can you be reinvigorated by the call? Renewed in the call? Not just that as you hear it from human voices, but as you see its heartbeat articulated from the very voice of God in Scripture. Behold the missionary community of suffering love in the city. Let's pray together. So Jesus, we come to you rejoicing that this is who you are. And this is who you are making us to be. So we ask that you would give us your Holy Spirit. Strengthen your church for the task. Uh, give us the disposition of a servant. And teach us to love like you. We pray this in Christ's name.